Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and this week we are discussing a topic that is very close to my heart personally. We are talking about orthorexia. Now, this may be something you have heard of, you might be familiar with the term, perhaps you haven't heard of orthorexia at all, but it is a type of eating disorder that I personally struggled with and today's guest also has struggled with. Um, And so I felt that we really needed to give a standalone episode to this topic because it's, it's a big one and it needed it. So this week I'm joined by the brilliant Catherine Metzelar, who you might know online as Brave Space Nutrition. And Catherine put a post on Instagram a few weeks ago, basically just defining what orthorexia was and just giving some really clear points and examples. And for me, it was just so so clearly my relationship with food for a long time and I'd never really seen it quite laid out in the way she explained it so I just thought we have to have this conversation on the podcast so whether this is something you may resonate with whether you may think of a friend or a loved one when listening to this podcast um I've linked to the charity beat in the uh info box and if you get all the way to the end Catherine shares um about some resources she has has linked in the in the info box as well of course I do want to give a content warning before we get into today's episode of course we are discussing disordered eating disordered behaviors with food and exercise so if this episode isn't for you right now maybe it's not worth listening to but before we get into this week's episode it is time for train happy trooper of the week this week's train happy trooper is l and l got in touch via our instagram account at train happy podcast to share her train happy moment my train happy moment has recently been stopping the audio cues on my runs i found that since stopping them i've run my longest distance Maybe not my quickest time, but I'm really listening to my body and how much it wants to move and stopping when I feel ready and not when I've reached the right distance or even stopping on an even kilometre distance when I would always push myself to round it up. And this is thanks to listening to the podcast and taking time to really think about how I feel and why I'm moving my body. Elle, thank you so much for getting in touch with that train happy moment and I I imagine fellow runners may relate to the whole pressure of thinking of rounding up you know to the nearest kilometer or the nearest mile and the way that yeah we do bypass our bodies in those moments when really we might need to walk for a bit rest or whatever else so really appreciate you sharing that train happy moment with us if you would like to be featured as this week's train happy trooper of the week 
and share your train happy moment with the listeners then do get in touch remember you can email trainhappypodcast at gmail.com or you can direct messages on instagram at trainhappypodcast okay let's get into this week's episode with the brilliant katherine metzeler Catherine, welcome to the Train Happy podcast. I'm so pleased to have you today because we're going to get into the topic of orthorexia, which some people may be familiar with. Some people, this might be kind of a new word for them and may need explaining. Um, But first of all, how are you? I'm doing so good, Tally. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored to be here and I'm excited to talk to you. I'm really excited because we've having such a nice chat prior to pressing the record button. Um, and so much of your work, I follow you on Instagram, which is how I found you and your work. And so much of what you write about and talk about just really hits home for me, resonates with me very personally, um, particularly this topic today. Um, but I'd love to know more about you, how you became a dietitian, how kind of your path to talking about eating disorders and nutrition and body image and diet culture and all this kind of stuff. Where did it begin for you? So interestingly enough, and not an uncommon story, uh, the path to deciding to study nutrition was because of my own eating disorder. So if we sort of park the bus and back it up, It all began when I was transitioning from high school into uh, my undergraduate, into university. Went on my first diet, and as we know, not all diets turn into eating disorders, but many eating disorders started with a diet. In this case, that was certainly the case for me. So I went on a very restrictive carbohydrate diet that summer. I started engaging in disordered eating behaviors. I started vomit purging um, and then binging quite a bit. Then that transitioned into exercise purging and just a lot of binging throughout that year once I went back to my second year at university. And then that sort of ebbed and flowed over time. I went and studied in other countries. Things started to get a little bit better. I experienced less disordered eating behaviors. And then, you know, after I came back and when got plunked right back into the university setting, um, the same kind of behaviors started to reemerge and surface as they do. And I decided to start restricting again. I decided I wanted to become a vegetarian and then I decided I wanted to become a vegan all the while being praised for being a healthy eater and engaging in these kinds of behaviors that are really elevated in our culture. And so this continued on. And again, as eating disorders go, there was sort of this wave-like ebb and flow. Sometimes it would have been less recognizable. Other times I was very, very much stuck in the behaviors. And so it was a few years later that I started to engage more in um, internet research. I started going on Google and looking up different, and of course, articles were popping up that were engaging my attention. And this was, I don't know, the early 2000s. I'm not exactly sure what year. Um, And it coincided with this wave in the U.S. and probably around the world with this hyper obsession with healthy eating and clean eating. And I started to really be interested in this. I was like, okay, so these things are not 
good for me. There's certain foods that are bad for me. I had already been told that anyway, um, in my family of origin, in, in the culture. But there was this sort of spin on it where the way it was being presented was that it was all dangerous. Food was dangerous. The environment was dangerous. There was a lot of things out there that could harm you. And I started to get more and more restrictive. It was like, well, if Dr. Google says it, if some Joe Schmo on some blog somewhere said that this piece of research supported something, well, then I should cut it out. And that spiraled over time. I, I started to cut out more and more foods and food groups to the point that honestly, fruits and vegetables, and I would say for the most part, probably just vegetables, became the only safe food for me. I felt a tremendous amount of anxiety around food. I started avoiding social situations that um, involved food that I wasn't eating. I wouldn't go to restaurants unless they were um, organic. I would do tons of research. I um, couldn't really move through the world freely because I was so stuck in my eating disorder. To give you an example, a, a sort of tragic example, but not an uncommon one, I once um, was going, I lived in Italy for some time and I was going back to Italy and I packed my suitcases and one of my suitcases, I packed an entire suitcase full of food to bring with me to Italy, which for those people listening, and I see you shaking your head, like the the irony Land of that. Food. <laughs> I know, I know. In my heart, I just feel so much compassion for myself, where I was, and of course others that are very much stuck in their eating disorder, um, and and for the clients that I work with, because it is, you know, it really steals a lot of life from us. Mm. And so, just sort of fast forward, I was thinking about food all the time. It took up all of my headspace. It was all I talked about. People came to me all the time because I was considered like this expert, even before I had studied nutrition, like what should I, should I be eating? What shouldn't I be eating? And it felt good. And I was being praised for it. And for someone that is a recovering people pleaser and a recovering perfectionist, this was just the perfect soup of things, if you will. It was like, oh, great. People are not only praising for this me for this, but I'm getting recognition. And so when I was super in my eating disorder, I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do in life. I just need a degree to show people that I have expertise. I'm going to teach people how to eat the way that I eat. So I went back, did prerequisites, went to my master's program in Washington State, where I live now in, in Seattle. And that's when I really was the first time that I was confronted with, with the beliefs that I had held. and. Um, what we actually know to be true about physiology, about the body, about research. I started to learn how to read research. And so all these previously held beliefs that, you know, Google is gospel. And if someone says it, it's true. And if research says it, it's true. All of that, it was just like a big balloon that was popped. And that's when things started to kind of disintegrate. Things don't happen that quickly, usually in terms of our own understanding, as you may know, of kind of where we're at and how disordered things are. But it was in my graduate program that I was like, oh, I need support. Like, I need to get help around this. Things are not okay. And I'm pretty sure I have an eating disorder. Wow. So it took until that point to go, oh, hang on a second and it's so interesting you say that like you probably took that role of like the healthy one the healthy friend the one to go to for nutrition advice um 
and maybe did you feel like some ways doing that master's degree was like just a formality really to kind of go ahead and to work you know work in nutrition in the way that you envisioned and, and wanted to and actually it was like a bit of a, a wake-up call a hundred percent I was so um confident that all I needed to do was to go to this program and and just I just wanted that stamp of approval because of the hierarchy of systems in the world, which is problematic in and of itself. But nonetheless, it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to get this degree and I will have expertise and done and done. And I'm I know that that's not always the case for everyone. In fact, it's really common in nutrition programs that the opposite happens. People come in with maybe a normative relationship with food or just having existed in diet culture have some beliefs and things actually get quite disordered in their program because of the way the program is structured and designed. And so that is not most certainly not uncommon. And I would say that for other health programs as well in terms of studies, but that wasn't the case for me partly because I had come in with just this sack full of um, beliefs that I really truly felt that were so true. And I think back to that, that time period when I was most sick and most in my eating disorder as to how defensive I was. I was just actually talking about this on Instagram in my stories yesterday because every time I post something that's related to calling out a particular diet that that is um, disordered and is an example of disordered eating, the comment section just kind of blows up. And there's a lot of people that come on there that feel very, very strongly about how wrong I am. And so I both hold um, that not everything I say will make people comfortable. It's really challenging uh, a whole set of beliefs that they've been told truths that they feel are very true and they may have their world kind of revolving around it while also feeling a tremendous amount of compassion towards where they're at because I know that they're very much stuck in diet uh, culture they might also too be on the in their own eating disorder or stuck in disordered eating and I know where I was back back then and if someone had something said something to me I was just so self-righteous it was like ah, no you're wrong and I'm right I do find it interesting that, yeah, I certainly have the same experience sometimes in the comment section or just in my messages or whatever with people who, and, and maybe people listen to this podcast, like they're just curious about this whole other kind of non-diet approach. Like, oh, so I can eat intuitively? No, I don't believe that to be true. Like, surely like, that's way too good to be true. That is, goes against everything I've been told. I can't trust myself. And so there's like this cognitive dissonance going on where it's like, oh, I'm really curious about what you're saying, but I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to let go of these habits. I'm not ready to let go of the way I've been doing things and this relationship with food. And I think especially if you're in an eating disorder, especially if you've had, you know, disordered eating, a lot of it is part of the way to cope with things and stuff. So it gets kind of complicated that there's like this an emotional tie and and stuff um, in there as well. So it's it's it feels quite confrontational sometimes with um, people. But I do think it's quite cool that someone might just see a post that you've done or, or something you've posted and, and just kind of feel like, Oh, and that can just literally sow a seed of like, oh, there there could be could be another way of approaching this. And 
oh, this could lead me down a path of discovering something new and, and really healing my relationship with food, which I do think is very cool. Yeah, thanks. I think it's also important to consider in that in that context that it is so much often for folks, and this was most certainly the case for me, a part of our identity. Like oh, we are yes. really asking people to challenge their own way of existing in the world. And whoo, is that super challenging? And I also agree with you that we are definitely seed planters along the way. I it was never just one thing. And I'm I'd be curious to know if it was similar for you in your own journey. But it was never just one thing or one person that led me to getting more support or just my process of healing, that it was many, many seeds over time and watering and tending to, right? The day that you plant the seed is not the day that it grows. And so it's both helpful to kind of think about that. Like there's no right way to heal. There's no timeline. Um, It takes time. Oftentimes it's not linear. It's often two steps forward, nine steps backwards. Um, and that's also what makes it really challenging, right? Because it is not, it is not like what diet culture has told us the way things are like do this program three months, one and done, you will have things happen fast. But so much of this is not like this. It's about, uh, unlearning and relearning so much that, that we've engaged in for, well, for a lot of folks for most of our lives, right? And it's sort of counterculture even though there's tons of research to support it, even though um, I personally don't feel like it is countercultural or radical, um, most certainly in comparison to sort of how, how diet culture is, it is. Yeah, yeah, it does. And like we're saying, you know, diet culture has become quite the norm in terms of our version of what we consider like a normal relationship with food is actually quite skewed. And I do think it's skewed towards disordered eating um in the sense of like you say like I'm thinking in from the fitness perspective as well like I was always more in that fitness space and once again had that identity of being the healthy one the fit one and because because diet culture has told us that health is getting smaller fitness is also about getting smaller and changing your shape of your body that providing that's happening and you're, you know, doing what it seems it should be, then everyone's fully supportive and and not many people raise any concern because you're just dedicated. You're just, you're just really healthy and you just have amazing willpower. And, you know, it's so good that like, you don't take any rest days. Like, wow, you are just so motivated. And it's not that <laughs> it's it's all from a place of fear and over what will happen if you do take a rest day it's all from a place of fear if you you know do eat that food that you've told yourself is forbidden and when we're operating from a place of fear and the shame that comes with if we were to you know to to break that rule that we have um how can that be healthy you know how can that mental state be healthy for us when we're constantly in that fear shame mindset oh yeah it's something that's often not talked about i know i know we do um but in kind of i often think of things of how can we get the google earth view how can we zoom out here and think about the impact of chronic stress on our body on our health and there's nothing like feeling stressed 
constantly about food and about exercise that taxes the body, puts it in a constant state of fight or flight, which has over time certain health implications. Not to mention, of course, when we're engaging in disordered exercise behaviors over exercise or disordered eating behaviors, there's often... um, ill health outcomes as a result, right? Malnutrition, um, uh, protein deficiencies, nutrient deficiencies, not to mention just your quality of life. I know that many clients I've worked with over time, and I imagine maybe you've seen this as well, where they're skipping on social situations, on opportunities to live their life fully because they're spending hours in the gym or they're spending hours uh, doing food prep. I know I most certainly um, engaged in that quite a bit. It took up so much of my time. And I think back to that and I'm like, geez, I missed out on so much. And I also um, think about that from an exercise perspective of how much time people are spending going to classes in the name of health when really it's impacting their health, their mental health, which we have to consider in the definition of what um, we consider to be healthy for oneself, but also just the the actual health of their bodies. It's really hard to sustain movement and exercise when we're exercising through injury, as you know, when we're not taking rest and when we're not getting enough food, enough carbohydrates to support um, our body in engaging in that kind of movement. Oh, absolutely. I, I can think of all the times I meal prepped and all the times I, you know, there was like the first year I became qualified as a personal trainer, I had a photo shoot and I decided I needed to prep for this photo shoot. So I was going to be on a diet and exercise and I was working this new job that is crazy hours anyway, you know, 6am starts and, you know, till, you know, working till late, whatever hours you could get, then coming home in the evening, doing my meal prep and just passing out. Um, And my poor boyfriend just feeling so sort of left out of like, oh, you know, want to spend time with you I want to see you and you know I'm just exhausted um it took a real toll on my on my kind of that personal relationship but also I think about what you're saying about being fed properly and one of the things and this is very anecdotal so it's different for everyone but the more I stressed about food and whether my food was healthy or not and how clean it was um, that's when my digestive issues were at their worst and my IBS symptoms were at their worst. I, you know, really found myself becoming increasingly sensitive to more and more things because, um, yeah, because of the the mental pressure I put myself, you know, under when I was fearful of these foods. Um, and not only that, I think there was perhaps a bit of a placebo effect there of me going like, Gluten is really bad for me. So every time I eat something with gluten, I have a reaction to it. I do get extremely bloated. I am in pain. I'm, I'm doubled over. Um, and because I'm blaming gluten, therefore it's become like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, every time I have gluten, I get the same thing. Um, and it was really interesting that only when I started to like allow myself to relax and like reintroduce gluten, I had it on a holiday when I was actually just finally relaxed for the first time in years and I was fine. And it's so interesting that how stress, when the stress is taken out of the equation, how much actually our bodies can function a lot better when we're not stressed. But 
Yeah, it's so funny that the irony of like wanting to be your healthiest, best self and so you're eating clean and working out so many days a week and getting up really early and doing this, doing that. And actually, sometimes if you, you know, nourish your body with, you know, a variety of foods, get the sleep, take the rest, actually your body will thank you in return. Yes. And variety is really an important word because we know when we're engaging in disordered eating, when we're stuck in the eating disorder, the kind, the variety that we have gets smaller and smaller yeah. and smaller to the point that there's only a handful of foods that feel safe, that feel okay to us. And we know, and the research supports this, that bodies, human bodies thrive most on variety of getting a variety of different kinds of foods, which is the opposite of what happens when we're in with disordered eating and really what our culture tells us. I think that that's what's so hard about um, shifting our perspective and mindset on our relationship with food and healing, because we are constantly being told that there's only a certain amount of foods that we could eat that are healthy for us, which by the way, is an ever moving target as we know, yeah. because if we had been having this conversation in the early nineties, it might be different, right? Depending on the diet du jour and what um, we were being told was good for us or not good for us. And so absolutely. And the nocebo effect is real, right? The um, uh, perceived negative effect of something, in this case, food, and then the experience of it causing harm to us when we're eating it, even though it might not be the case, as you said, you know, the experience of thinking, okay, well, gluten is going to harm me, it's not going to be good for me. And therefore, we have a stress reaction to that, and then experience ill digestion because of it. Want to add a caveat? I definitely want to make space for people that do have allergies and do oh, yeah. have, you know, challenges with certain foods. And it's it's important, I think, the offering I'll have to anyone that's listening to this is to really get curious about that because I too used to be very convinced that I couldn't tolerate gluten and dairy and other foods when really it was um, uh, mostly emotional and the belief just believing the things that I have been told that these foods and food groups were bad for me and had similar experiences. As soon as I introduced those foods, it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm actually okay with yeah. what's going on. <laughs> I know. It's, I, I think it's interesting. My um, boyfriend and I were talking at lunch and he was just, we were having this random chat going, you know, what reminds you of me? And what reminds, and he said, gluten-free menus remind remind me of you I'm like well that's interesting because I've eaten gluten for, we've been together seven years I've eaten gluten for the last kind of probably four or five years it's so interesting how that's really stuck with him but I'm still the gluten-free girl even though that's not something I have looked for and, and sought out for a very long time but it was so interesting that that's still considered part of me even though you know I don't claim that in any way um I, okay, I, I feel like let's define orthorexia for those listening because I feel like we could talk about this all day, but let's really get specific about orthorexia and what it is and, and kind of its uh, description really and, and definition. <laughs> Yeah. The irony of this is my eating disorder was orthorexia. So full yeah, circle same. coming back to things. <laughs> um, 
talking about it is just really, really curious. So um, orthorexia was coined in the 90s by Dr. Stephen Bratman. He coined it because he was just, uh, uh, from my understanding, a general practitioner seeing his patients, recommending certain ways of eating. And he started to notice this shift in his practice with his clients or, or patients um, exhibiting symptoms that were really similar to other eating disorders. But there was, a, there was a, a little bit of a difference. So this sort of hyper obsession with healthy eating, pure eating, clean eating, but to the point that it was causing them to have nutrient deficiencies, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. It was taking up a ton of headspace and they were coming in talking about it a lot. And he was like, something is not right here. And so he coined this term. And so we think about orthorexia generally, orthorexia nervosa. It is an eating disorder, although it's not in the DSM, which I'm sure we'll dive into. Um, it is an eating disorder that is defined as when healthy eating becomes sort of obsessive when healthy eating becomes unhealthy. And so I actually wrote down a list of signs and symptoms that we clinically are looking for. And I think it would be helpful if that feels okay with you for me to Please. read them aloud. <laughs> because um, as, as you'll see, and um, as the person who is listening to this podcast will hear, why it's so tricky to notice, call out uh, orthorexia because of the kinds of behaviors that exist within the disorder that are so in alignment with what this diet culture promotes. So I'll go ahead and read the sides and symptoms. Obsession with avoiding foods that contain animal products, fats, sugar, salt, food coloring, dyes, or pesticides. Even that one sentence alone, I feel like we could have a whole podcast on. Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back anytime. <laughs> um, obsessive concern with food and the development of health consequences, such as medical illness like asthma, allergies, gastrointestinal problems, which we were just talking about. Obsession with consuming supplements and vitamins. An extreme limitation on food groups that may result in only consuming about 10 ingredients or less. An increased amount of time spent thinking about food allowing food to revolve around one's schedule, obsession with meal prepping, which we've touched on as well, an irrational concern around food preparation techniques and the cleanliness of the kitchen, avoidance of food prepared or bought by others. We're thinking of restaurants, going out, buying things, extreme feelings of guilt and shame when consuming unhealthy foods, feelings of power and satisfaction when consuming only healthy foods, refusing to go out to eat or allow oneself to be around other types of foods and isolating yourself from others because they don't share the same beliefs. So you can see why tick, it's so tick. tricky. Yeah. Tick, 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 <laughs> yeah. Tick. Yes. You, you read me, you, you described me in like 2013, 2014. That was yeah. down to a T. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the curious thing, as I was saying before, all of the behaviors that are exhibited, the signs and symptoms of orthorexia are the same kind of behaviors that are praised and promoted in diet culture. And that's why it took me so long and why it takes many others so long that are stuck in orthorexia to get the help and support that they need. It's hard for people to see it, even for our own selves. Absolutely. because. You know, if you're looking to, and I, I hate to, to generalize, but if you're get, 
that's the kind of advice that we often get from fitness, other fitness professionals, from health and wellness influencers online, from blogs. I read a lot of stuff in blogs that influenced the way I should be eating. Um, you know, I, I remember reading a very specific blog by, you know, a blogger and influencer in the UK that said, you know, cut out refined sugars, you know, go gluten-free for your digestive issues and stuff. Um, and we're getting this information from other people who have a disordered relationship with food, you know? And, you know, I don't like to say every single person working in the fitness industry has an eating disorder. That's not necessarily true at all. But that there are, there are certainly a quantity who are. There certainly are. And, you know, a lot of that, messaging comes through in the mainstream i've recently had an obsession i, I think i've spoken spoken about it on the podcast before but i keep posting about it on instagram i've got a current obsession with real housewives of beverly hills now this is mm. all relevant um <laughs> i don't know if you've ever watched the show i haven't watched the beverly hills one but i've seen real housewives at different times the diet culture and the messaging in that program about food and particular um particularly Yolanda Hadid is obsessed with the master cleanse um lets herself eat a crumb of cake is very obsessed with her daughter's eating habits because she's a model um and you know a lot of what certain things you know she's kind of doing I'd be like that's quite disordered to only allow yourself a crumb of a cake at a party and a cake you bought for your daughter's like leaving party and only you, you won't allow yourself to eat any like that's that's a red flag and that's also very very sad um and so there's like we see this on tv we see this in magazines you know one of the biggest shows that was on tv especially in like the 20 early 2010s 2000s were things like the biggest loser where you mm. had that as kind of a fitness role model and I looked up to people like Gillian Michaels as a fitness role model and you know that kind of advice she's giving and things she says are like wow that they I can you know really see how that impacted my relationship with food and my relationship with exercise and so it's it's yeah it's it's kind of like oh this is this is everywhere it is like the that? water. Oh yeah. It is the yeah. water that we swim in. And I often say, you know, it's really hard to recover from disordered eating, from chronic dieting, from your eating disorder into a culture that essentially has an eating disorder mm-hmm. because it's not like we, um, go out into the culture and experience, um, generally a culture that is anti-diet, right? Or um, that is really promoting the trust of your body or is really challenging food rules, all the things that we are working on in recovery. And it's also hard. I know that this analogy is one that's used often, but if we think about diet culture as being the water that we swim in, and you're learning all of these new things, like we can imagine we're both fish for a moment. And you go up to these other fish that are swimming around and you're like, hey, you've discovered the water. You're like, there's water around us, right? You go up to the other fish and you're like, do you see this water? This water is actually really toxic. It's not good for us. We need to swim somewhere else. We need to get out of here. And the fish are like, what water? I don't know what you're talking about, right? And so that's really hard too, because... I think this is also another important thing for us to consider 
which is the community that diet culture uh, often offers and how that is another challenging part of moving away from um, disordered eating, the eating disorder, or just engaging in dieting because we often center our careers around it. Uh, we, uh, talk about it a lot. I mean, I'm even thinking about your partner saying like, when I think of you, I think of gluten-free, right? It becomes a part of how we move through the world. And therefore we center our communities around or seek out communities that support that way of thinking and, um, and and moving through the world. And so to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to practice this. I'm not going to engage in this in these conversations, even with people that are still in my life can be a really lonely process. And that's most certainly something that comes up quite a bit with the humans that I work with. They're like, geez, all my friends are talking about dieting and wanting to lose weight. And um, gosh, especially now as we sort of come out of the pandemic and people are sort of uh, socializing more, but nonetheless, it can be a really lonely process because as you said, it is, the water that we swim in and it's it's not like we can just kind of go out of the water there are ways that we can learn to move away from it to recognize it to see it from miles away so that we can swim somewhere else to create our own community which is actually a really important part of the process as well but it's hard it's all really really challenging it it is and i you know going back to what you said kind of earlier as well like it's not necessarily a like snap your fingers and you're healed and you're fine and you're immune to these things, these old behaviors, these old thought patterns, you know, these old feelings around, you know, food and exercise and your body and things. Um, It is a process. And I think what's so wonderful about kind of social media is that we are finding this community of people who are kind of supporting each other through that recovery whether it be through you know just sharing Instagram posts or listening to this podcast and being like oh wow there are other people who've been through something I've been through and and I relate to that um you know you're right it's so so important to to have that um with I suppose with people listening to the podcast who are kind of thinking this definition of orthorexia like really resonates with me or maybe someone I know where do we go from there where you know what do we do with that information <laughs> how can we maybe you know start on a path of healing for ourselves or yeah let's, I think let's start with the individual who's resonating with that and then go with you know friends and family who might recognize it because I think that can be another thing in itself My stance on all of this is if there is chaos in the brain, you deserve support. If anyone is listening to this, I really want them to know that they deserve support. So we want to think about the fact that it is a very common experience, especially in eating disorders, to never feel like we are sick enough to get support. Even for those that are very stuck and very sick in their eating disorder, will still not believe that they're sick enough. So if you are questioning, if you are wondering, could there be something going on? I sort of fit some of those signs and symptoms. Wow, definitely. Like you said, tick, 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 like all of those. Get support. 
And I know that getting individual support isn't always an option or might not be what somebody's ready for. And I know that sometimes access is most certainly a challenge. And like you said, there are places that we can start. So listening to podcasts, podcasts like yours, and there's many others, starting to read books, signing up for groups. There are free groups. There are um, definitely other groups that are paid or just reaching out to a practitioner, one that practices from um, a non-diet or anti-diet perspective, whether that be a mental health therapist or a dietitian that specializes in eating disorders to just have a chat, have a chat with them and say, hey, this is what's going on. I'm not quite sure, which I've had a lot of folks reach out to me and just be like, something's not right. I think it's disordered eating. I don't know. Maybe I have an eating disorder. And most of the time we come to it and it's like, well, you might not fit all of the qualifications, which is neither here nor there to have a clinical eating disorder diagnosis. I like to say like the fairy godmother of the eating disorder comes over you and (laughs) boops you on the nose with an eating disorder diagnosis. Um, that's not the case for a lot of people. I never got a formal diagnosis, for example, but I'm able, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm able to say in in retrospect as a clinician and knowing more that I most certainly had an eating disorder and it just depended on when you would have caught me that um, I would have maybe been able to receive a diagnosis. Um, So you do not need a diagnosis to get help and support. If there's chaos in the brain, you deserve help and support and prevention is where it's at. So we do not want to get to a place, ideally, where someone no longer has as much control over the outcome of what's going on. Maybe they get to a place where they need a higher level of care. And so why not? We know that prevention is powerful and is effective. And so even if someone isn't in a place where they maybe check all of the boxes or meet all of that criteria for any eating disorder, including orthorexia, getting support earlier rather than later is definitely something that I recommend for anyone who's listening. Totally agree. And, you know, there's a guy I follow on TikTok and he's so great. He's called William. And I think his username's like William Carl's Pumpkins, something really random. (laughs) He makes all these videos and they're like 10 seconds long. And he just goes, people with eating disorders don't worry about whether they have an eating disorder or not. So you go and get help. Like that's literally mm-hmm. the video. And it's such a good point. It's like people who people who have eating disorders don't Google, do I have an eating disorder? Mm-mm. You know, they people with a healthy relationship with food don't even think twice about their relationship with food. And it's kind of like that blew my mind. I was like, like, yeah. okay, <laughs> that is so true. And I wish I saw that, you know. Uh, you know, sort of seven, eight years ago, I wish I, you know, I wish I saw someone kind of say it like that because then I would have had the confidence to go. Because I do remember like Googling orthorexia and go, I don't, I'm not sure that's exactly me. Like, I'm, I don't necessarily tick every single box. Same. Um, yeah, side note, I do tick every single box. I was just in <laughs> denial. Um, oh, yeah. That I, you know, I didn't want to believe it to be true because it was kind of scary and, and, and fearful to be like, what? does this mean for this to be true like you know Mm -hmm. no you know I'm just being healthy and I'm you know I'm more in control than that and I think that's partly like that whole stigma around mental health and stuff that we just don't really know um and so if anyone's feeling like that I do just want to say as you said like 
there's no harm in just asking someone and talking to a professional and you know buying a book like the intuitive eating book is awesome like the fourth edition they have literally and Elise Resch is such a great tool there's a workbook as well you know if you feel that okay I'm not sure this is severe enough for a professional but you can at least there's like you say there's starting points and then if you do think actually I'd, I'd like some help with this there are people out there and there are services out there um and that is really important to do that but yeah just seeing those videos um it's so great to see someone putting that out there to to like a younger generation as well especially with tiktok and that reminds me i wanted to say to you as well um i too felt like i suffered with orthorexia early in my 20s and you know i know that kind of um transitional points in our lives are often um we are more vulnerable to develop developing eating disorders whether it be transitioning from like you say like high school and um to uni from there into your kind of career or whatever you end up path you do after that education that those early 20s are can often be a point and then I also think I'm right in saying that through menopause as well that can often be a very triggering time for people and can therefore and, and especially with the information around menopause around changing your diet and doing xyz and all the fear mongering mm-hmm. around weight gain and menopause that there's this mm-hmm. need to control sugar and food and everything and so that's also often a you know a point where the, people can start falling down that slippery slope again um so yeah is there anything you would say to maybe like those particular groups of people or people in that stage of their life or um you know I don't know just some sort of reassurance or some advice on how to kind of navigate that time it's so hard and you're absolutely right periods of transition are most certainly times that we're most vulnerable we think about puberty transitioning as you mentioned college or rather um, high school into university university into the world menopause um having children yes I, I should during after yeah yes yes so um in terms of advice, I think being aware of the vulnerability of those time periods is a good place to start. It's not necessarily common knowledge. It's most, it definitely comes up in my work with clients and that I see often of um, the, either someone who's been in recovery for some time and all of a sudden things start to resurface. And so if it's possible, again, to get support, whether that be from an individual or to exist and be part of a community. I know, for example, in the body image group, the women's um, body image group that I run, that's both educational and a support group. um, I created it because I kept hearing over and over again in individual sessions, no one else knows what I'm experiencing because they couldn't talk to it about other people in their life. It's just me who feels like this. It's just me who's thinking this way. And it's like, Oh, there are so many others. Totally, totally. So I actually think that being part of a community is an, is an important part of healing. There is a tremendous amount of healing that I've seen that happens in community when people can support one another, when people can not only say, me too, I've been there, but also to have this team of people that are behind you, like, yes, you are doing the damn thing. You are doing hard things. We're right there with you. And so when I think about the vulnerability of those periods of transition, if you can find a community of people 
to support you through that, right? Whether it even be to start like a um, group online, even if it's just sort of virtual, I'm thinking of like Facebook groups and other things. Um, But if there's ones that you can do virtually or even in person, that can be a beautiful support during that period of time of transition because it's just so hard. There's so many things that are unknown and because eating disorders are biological, psychological, and social, when there are things that are happening in our environment, and we already have some predispositions, we know that genetics, for example, has a big um, impact on the development of eating disorders, but also um, thinking about our own perfectionism, our own history of trauma, when we're thrusted into to a stage in life where we have no control over things, or things kind of feel sort of up in the air, of course, we will resort to the things that have helped us to survive, to get through really hard things um, that allow us to feel a temporary greater sense of control over things, even though we know it's temporary and only it leads to feeling even more out of control. And so just knowing that, you know, these kinds of behaviors, disordered eating, eating disorders de- develop as a way to help us survive things and that they, of course, would be presented with things feel really hard, and that community helps, getting support helps, isolation only makes things worse, and yet that's what the eating disorder wants. It yeah. thrives in secrecy. So telling people, being open about what you're experiencing um, with people, of course, that we trust with, if we have partners or friends of like, things are not right right? Things are starting to shift for me um, so that you can really, as I like to say, sort of like punch holes in the eating disorder, if you will, of just like, no, you are not going to isolate me even more. um, And I'm going to sort of nip this in the bud as quickly as possible by being open with people that I trust in community and with individuals about how difficult of a time I'm having, which really also challenges the stigma that's out there. As you know, there's so much stigma around eating disorders. And so part of the way that we really challenge that stigma is by being open about what we're experiencing, because, you know, the statistics support that a lot of folks have eating disorders, but who gets studied is even more problematic. So we know that um, the rate of the amount of people that are experiencing eating disorders is way higher than what we know. And so most likely, actually, I can confidently say that what people are experiencing generally, and then in times of transition, they are not alone in that. And when you're talking about that lack of control and those time periods where we feel like things are really difficult, and I just think this past year of lockdowns and a pandemic, and, you know, this is when we want to control things as much as we can because so much is out of our control. And so I I know that eating disorders will have kind of thrived at this time and, and will be really rearing their ugly heads to really try and get you to kind of control things and go back to those old ways and and I think that's why so many people are like well maybe I'll just do that diet again or maybe I'll just if I just did that then you know if I just stopped eating sugar for a bit then I'll feel great and then it's this slippery slope of like you know especially if you've got history of that stuff it starts like creeping back in and and I I do know that rates of eating disorders will have gone up I know services in the UK there's a particular charity called Beat and I I believe that they have been inundated with you know people getting in touch and people concerned about themselves about family members and so yeah I recognize that the the kind of trauma of a pandemic like 
this is this is a lot to mentally cope with um and so it's really natural to want to control things um and yeah, we're not even like, entirely yeah totally totally we're not even entire, entirely out of it right yeah. it's hard i think about it again as sort of this reverberating um uh sort of impact that we're only beginning to see just the beginnings of the impact that this kind of trauma has had on all of us. And again, when we think about um, the behaviors as existing as a way to try to regulate our nervous system to deal with really hard things, of course, they would come up during a pandemic. Of course, they would come up when tons of people are getting sick and dying and we are isolated. I mean, we talked about this in the beginning, how we are most certainly. in a sort of mental health crisis, because the same in the US, practitioners are definitely burnt out, they're seeing as many people as possible, services are hard to get, a lot of people are booked. And um, just thinking about how our mental health often worsens in isolation, one of the the recommendations we often give is do not isolate, go out, uh, be around other people. But in the pandemic, we weren't allowed, right? And so, so many things for folks either started or came back. I had many new clients during the pandemic that were like, things felt okay, or I was doing good. And all of a sudden, my eating disorder behavior started to come back. And all of a sudden, I started um, doing the things that I didn't used to do before. And so it makes a lot of sense. It also makes a lot of sense too. And this is something I tend to offer and think about, which is Sometimes it is or feels easier to focus on, for example, the amount of sugar that we're eating instead of being with the really scary reality of a pandemic, right? Of people dying, of, right? Of your life being threatened and all the things. I mean, I, it will take probably a lifetime, I believe, for us that have experienced this pandemic to really understand the impacts of it. And it will go way beyond our lifetime as well, because number one, we're still in it, even though we're seeing lots of changes with the vaccines. But nonetheless, and just sort of looping back to that notion of like, it's a lot easier to focus on cutting out things than to be with the experience of of what's happening. In fact, it, it might be overwhelming or impossible, you know, for that's a really common experience when we're in it. Definitely. And I think that's really important to highlight with this, this pandemic. And I think in general, like in normal life, when there isn't a pandemic happening, it's hard to be with sadness, you know, negative feelings, discomfort. It's hard to be with all that stuff. And so we try and do anything we can to stop feeling those feelings. So we distract ourselves with the controlling of the food, with this obsession of sugar, with this, you know, focus on clean, clean, clean eating. And, you know, for me, I've spoken about this before, it was the loss of my dad that actually was the repercussions. Like years later was when I started really going down this path of disordered eating because I was also at drama school and that was a very competitive environment where I had little control over the outcomes. And so it was like a perfect storm for me, you know, for those things and all of it was because you know I didn't know how to express my emotion I you know wasn't really taught to express my emotion I didn't really know how to feel and cope with emotions and feelings and all that stuff so I would just kind of keep on going and not really acknowledge them and so I you know I always think that if you're having these difficult strained relationship with your with food with exercise with your body 
there's that's a, probably also a red flag but there's a deeper issue there and that that is that root of of the, the greater things and these are almost like it's symptomatic of that of like ah okay there's deeper wounds here and you know this this eating disorder is is so hard in and of itself and it's a wound in and of itself but you know it was like started by something else until i was able to really address my own trauma history my own perfectionism my own anxiety and my own therapy yeah i wasn't i would not have been able to heal because they're so it's an important part of why eating disorders develop to say that it's just about food and body is not only dismissive to say that people just need to eat more or in some cases eat less um, is reductionist and uh, it doesn't actually get to the root there's a really awesome infographic that I've seen at different times where it's this big iceberg of like what eating disorders look like. You've seen that um, on the surface and what we see and then all the things at the iceberg underneath of it that we don't see on the surface. And so it is not only what makes it more um, complex to heal, but it also to your point um, involves really getting some support and help when possible around our own trauma histories, around our own anxiety, around what we've experienced as individuals in our family of origin and throughout our life that has led to the development of ways of trying to cope when we didn't have other coping skills, not to mention existing in a culture where, um, uh, experiencing our emotions and feelings are very much demonized, um, that we're told very specific things about how we need to move and operate in this world. There's a ton of stigma around mental health as well. And so, yeah, the iceberg is much deeper in terms of what are the things that um, contribute to the development of an eating disorder and how have we learned to cope and do the best that we can um, when we didn't have other tools. And this is what I always say, that diet culture taught us the coping mechanism of disorder eating. It taught us to blame our body. It taught us that if we could just change our bodies and change our appearance, then the other stuff, that's how we cope. That's how we deal with these things. We just lose weight. You know, we drop a dress size, whatever it is. And that's where, the, for me, the blame really lies with diet culture because it's not just, yes, the, the behaviors themselves, but it's the fact that it was taught as a coping mechanism. And I think that's the real kind of, issue I always kind of come back to with diet culture that's my beef you know <laughs> like it's it, I, I whenever I think throughout this past year when people have said I'm struggling with my body image like it's really tough right now particularly with weight gain through a pandemic or weight gain at any point in life because of this fat phobic world you know and because of diet culture where we're taught to blame ourselves through all of that but really it's just like a, a sign that you need to there's deeper stuff there, you know, there's deeper things. And once again, I wish therapy was more accessible. I wish it was more available because I do think that that really gets that next level of healing. Um, and I have to say as well, and I don't know if this was your experience, but I really kind of worked on my relationship with food and fitness and exercise and everything first. And then I went to therapy. And I don't know if this is necessarily a recommendation at all, but I just found that, um, yeah, it was, 
that healing that kind of surface level stuff allowed me to really like get into the deeper stuff rather than going like the food's the issue and actually going like hang on a second the food's not the issue and it's not an issue anymore for me so what was really going on and how can we kind of join the dots up with everything else um saying that I think therapy is great at any point but that was my experience um I don't know if it was the same for you or oh yeah Absolutely. I think of it as being like an onion recovery. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I see this also in the group that I run or with the clients that I work with, of we start working on one thing, because we think that that's the issue, or that's what's going on. And then we sort of remove that one layer. And then we see, oh, my gosh, there's so much more here. And I also believe that similar to, for example, the grief process, I'm thinking of that, as you mentioned, your dad, my mom died a couple of years as well of like, we can't do everything at once. It is not possible. Like I'm thinking about, you know, just the grief process also, as it relates to, for example, our relationship with our body and even, you know, our, our own identity, as we were talking about earlier, that it's okay that it is like an onion that we're sort of peeling back the layers because it would be so overwhelming to do all of it at once. So starting with like, oh, wait, there's something off with my relationship with food. Let me start with that as, yeah. as you did. Let me start reading some books. Let me start listening to some podcasts. Let me join a group. Let me get individual support because then that allows us, as you said, to once we've really unpacked that um, and taken off that layer of the onion, if you will, we can begin to see, oh, there's the rest of the iceberg, right? There's the rest of the onion. And actually what's driving these behaviors is much deeper and much more complex than, than just eating more foods or um, exercising less and understanding our own history so that we can be and practice more compassion towards the reasons why the, this existed because we don't choose eating disorders really important for us to remember a lot of people feel like they they did um we don't choose to have them we don't choose to experience disordered eating and so absolutely it happens in sort of a titrated fashion because i think that that's just what needs to happen because we can't do it all at once so important to kind of emphasize that like you say that it's not your fault and it's you're not to blame and um, there's, yeah, like I say, I always point the blame at diet culture, if in doubt, <laughs> if in doubt, if in doubt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if we're thinking about those listening who may go, look, this is my, you know, my daughter, my son, my friend, my partner, how can we, uh, you know, how can we support people in our lives who we think might be struggling with their relationship with food? And I, to be honest, I don't know if I know really the answer to this question. Um, so I'd be really interested in your perspective. It's important for us to consider that when someone is very much stuck in their eating disorder or in disordered eating, similar to what we have said in our experiences, they are going to believe that what they're doing often is right. And so often if we have, for example, a partner or a friend that we're sort of suspicious of, like something has changed, something might be off, that number one, it's important to be a good listener, right? Oftentimes when um, someone is sick or stuck, 
telling them what to do, telling them how to eat will not be helpful. In fact, that will be a sign of like, nope, this isn't a person that I want to talk to about this. And I'm going to distance myself even further. It's okay to say, for example, if someone does open up to you, which is a big deal to hold that space. If someone says, hey, you know, I'm something's not right, or I'm concerned, or I'm wondering to say, you know, I'm not quite sure what to say, but I'm listening to you. And it's important to me um, that that I, I be here with you, essentially. Um, you can offer uh, ways that you can support them if it's appropriate, if you're hearing like, hey, I'd love some support around this, or I'm not really sure what direction to go in. You might say, hey, you know, would you like me to give you a list of practitioners in the area that you could reach out to to make this more simple? Or um, you can offer uh, most certainly some empathy of I I have been there, if that's the case for you, if you're a friend, or um, I've experienced something similar, and my experience might be different from yours, and I'd love to hear more if you're willing to share you are allowed to express concern as well in a kind and compassionate way that might sound like I really love you and I'm worried because I'm noticing how things have changed, that food is taking up a lot of headspace and a lot of time for you. And I'm wondering what your experience has been like and if, if you're noticing that too. And so just really coming back to shaming doesn't work, convincing people to, um, it's just not possible to do it differently, but to be someone that's there to offer support when it's possible for more resources, for connecting people, um, and just reminding other people that it's a process too, right? But that um, because eating disorders thrive in secrecy, that it's okay for you to say, I'm worried about you. I've been noticing these things. I care about you. And I want to listen. I'm here to listen. Yeah. And like you say, just providing that space and that, that safe space to kind of open up and, and be honest. And also like not necessarily needing to have the answers or the fix. Mm-hmm. Um, that just go, I, look, I hear you. Um, and yeah, and I, I remember when I was at drama school, people, I had a few situations where some of the teachers pulled me aside and said, like, are you okay? Or, you know, I'm worried about you. And I was extremely defensive and so upset that people kind of accused me of not being well, of having an eating disorder. Because in my head, specifically with the orthorexia with eating disorders I felt like it was to do with denying yourself food whereas with orthorexia for me I never denied myself to eat but I was mm-hmm. very controlling around what I ate yes. and so I felt that my narrow view of what eating disorders were at the time were that like well that's not me I'm eating all the time I eat more than anyone here it's just you know homemade clean food that has a very limited ingredient list um mm-hmm. So I felt very defensive about that. And I remember getting really upset with with a singing teacher and, and one of my dance teachers and just going like, what? you? No, I'm just being healthy. And I really didn't receive it well. And then I remember a friend kind of going to me, one of my housemates at the time, just saying to me, like, yeah, like spending a lot of time on this. It's like, are you okay? And rather than rather than pointing the finger and going, you've got an eating disorder. They just kind of went like, are you okay? 
Mm. And that really opened up and allowed me to go, oh, maybe I need to, at the time, that was actually one of the key things that led me to delete my fitness pack, which was the first Mm. step in a huge, huge, huge process. But that was a massive step for me at the time. And so deleting that app was like the first step. And it was because a friend just asked me like, you know, we just want to, we're worried about you. We just want to check in. And then I was able to go like, actually, yeah, maybe this is, you know, too much. And I think what you're right, it is really about kind of holding space for people and just being there for them and, and not necessarily accusing them of anything. Yes, your friends and teachers did such a beautiful job of asking, are you okay? I think about how no one ever said that to me and how much of a difference it would have made for people just to express concern. And I think it brings up an important point, which is if you notice whether you're a um, trainer or a teacher or a friend or a partner, if you're starting to notice things, don't expect that just because you ask or just because you bring it up, that that's going to be the game changer for someone to say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to go get help. That it's many things as you described, many people, many experiences over and over again of people saying, you know, are you okay? Is everything okay? And like you said, not pointing the finger and just sort of energetically and also in words, just opening up and saying, I'm, I'm here if you want to talk about it, or these are the kinds of things that I'm noticing. But defensiveness is a normal expected outcome of that kind of conversation for folks that are thinking about bringing it up, just know that it doesn't mean you've said something wrong or that you're doing it wrong. If you say to someone that you care about in your life, Hey, I'm wondering if you're okay. And these are the things I'm noticing that they might be like, what are you talking about? No way I'm healthy or I'm engaging in these kinds of behaviors. And I would have responded very similarly um, to how you described back then of like, no, I'm doing it the right way. This is what I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm healthy, even though I was very not healthy and quite sick. And so what a beautiful thing. Like, I really just felt like a lot of tenderness as I was listening to all the people that have had said that to you and how that was part of what led you to say, okay, there's something off here. Whereas so many people don't say things in particular because of weight stigma and because of anti-fatness, for example, that those in particular that are in larger bodies, people make assumptions about how they're eating and about how sick or not sick that they are. Not to mention, um, for me, while I have a tremendous amount of thin privilege, I never fit the, um, the stereotype, which we know is a very small portion of the way eating disorders look, even though eating disorders don't have a look, we're told that they exist in very thin bodies, usually white bodies. Um, And I never fit that criteria. And so people just assumed, well, you know, you're fine because you don't, you don't um, fall within the BMI category of being underweight. And so I think that that was most certainly part of it too, of people making assumptions about um, how sick or not sick I was, not only because all of the behaviors that I was engaging with in orthorexia were elevated and praised in this culture, but also because I never fit the very narrow standards of what people think eating disorders look like. Um, and so therefore, no one ever said to me, you know, I'm concerned. Um, and it just really highlights too, that everybody's body responds differently to 
restrictive eating disorder uh, behaviors to exercise behaviors. Some people will, some individuals will lose their menstrual cycle. Some will not. Some will start to experience nutrient deficiencies. Some will not. Some people will have super low energy. Some will not. Some people's bodies will lose weight and some will not. We know so much of that is impacted from our understanding so far by genetics, right? How have our ancestors survived um, how did they adapt to not having enough food? And so this is another reason, number one, that eating disorders are um, related to mental health. They do not have a look because everybody's body responds differently. So we can't base it exclusively on symptoms or characteristics, for example, that we most commonly think about in terms of the what one might experience with eating disorders because it's pretty common for people to have labs that look just great or to have to lose weight, but not lose weight in the way that we're told. And so I want us to all remember that, that eating disorders don't have a look. And that because of that, you know, and thinking about just offering when you're concerned about someone, it's okay to say I'm concerned, even if someone doesn't fit all of or tick all the boxes of what we have been told eating disorders look like, or how they might present on the surface. And it's important to say as well about, as you rightfully mentioned, this idea that what people would um, kind of describe as disordered eating in a person with a small body can often be praised in someone in a large body. Those same behaviors could be a red flag in someone and is a congratulations to someone else. Like, well done, you haven't, you've exercised every day for a month. That's a red flag. But if another person does it like wow you're like you're really making a massive lifestyle change for yourself because of this whole notion that our size is the sole determinant of our our health status and so I think it's really important we acknowledge that that no matter your body size if you're listening to this conversation and it's resonating then you should seek support and and go down those avenues that you need to go down because it is not not at one point when you were describing orthorexia did it say about body size actually it was all about these behaviors and it's these behaviors we need to focus on rather than getting so bogged down in what we think it looks like um because sadly so much gets missed and that's another yeah, real contentious part of, of this that, that discussion, especially, and and I know that um, that's something that needs to kind of change in the eating disorder space. You know, this notion that um, yeah, that that everyone gets treated equally and has the same access to treatment, the same quality of care that they yes. get when they're, they're in recovery. That they are, you know, um, yeah. I mean, we could do a separate episode on it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I feel like we've just covered so much today. I've loved our conversation, Catherine. Where can everyone find you? Find your brilliant Instagram post. Like I said, I'm a huge fan. Um, where can they find you? And um, yeah. 
So thank you so much. Uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation too. Everything I feel like I could go off in, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, don't step on my soapbox, kind of take it back a few steps because there's so much richness and juiciness to these conversations that it's hard to cover, you know, in a short amount of time. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. So folks can find me most certainly on Instagram at Brave Space Nutrition, on my website, bravespacenutrition.com, on YouTube under Catherine Metzelar on Twitter at RD, um, uh, K Metzlar. And, um, also by signing up for my newsletter, I write blogs weekly. And so that's a great way to, when we're talking about beginning things of learning more, um, and then also I wanted to offer your audience a free resource that I have that maybe if you um, want to, you could link in yeah, the show notes. Um, it is a guide, seven tips on how to create peace with food when you're afraid of gaining weight. That's something that comes up quite a bit with um, folks that We're I talk have to. to have you back to talk about that. Yes, I'm here to, for it. Because I'm here that for is it. a massive FAQ for this podcast. We're gonna have to. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. And I, I think it really the reason why I created this guide is because I want to really just start creating space to talk about that, that that's a really common experience. And while we want to really acknowledge and unpack anti-fat bias and weight stigma, I also really want to make space for the very real fear, considering the culture that we exist in, that when we're talking about um, intuitive eating and adapting a different kind of relationship and embracing a different kind of relationship with food, that there's very real fear there. And that's really valid. And so I created this guide as sort of a, a launching pad, a starting point, a, a seed for folks. And so, um, um, I wanted to offer that to your audience. I think that's so great. And like I said, we're going to have to have a conversation about that because I 100% agree with you. 100% agree. Um, oh, this has been so great. I've had a great time chatting. I, I feel like reading your work really resonates with me. So I just knew that we would just be totally on the same page in person. So it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome, Tally. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure for me too. And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. 